I don't have to tell you that history is full of seeming coincidences. Uh, You'll know of some of these, I'm sure. Uh, One that I, as a historian, particularly enjoy thinking about, kind of counterfactual. Uh, If Corsica, the island of Corsica, where Napoleon was born, had not been transferred from Italy to France right before he was born, the French Empire, the Napoleonic Wars, they might not have happened. That actually would have changed the course of American history. Or, or you think about the fact that had his driver not gotten lost and had his would-be assassin not stopped for a sandwich at a particular cafe, Archduke Ferdinand might not have been assassinated that day. And World War I might not have started, which means maybe World War II might not have started. Or particularly in, in my love of church history, had Catherine of Aragon been able to conceive a son, we might all be Roman Catholic today. The whole English-speaking world, the English Reformation might not have happened It's really interesting thinking about these seeming coincidences and the counterfactuals that would flow from them. And it's not just in history, is it? We we see it in in our own lives. I mean, how is it that you that you met the person that you eventually married if you're if you're married? Or or how is it that you actually got that first job that has launched you out on a career path that you continue to follow? I think so often we can look back at those fateful moments and and we can clearly see that, man, if if just one thing had changed, if just one thing had been different at that moment, our whole life going forward would be different than it is. And sometimes if you think about it enough, it begins to make you wonder. Is life just random events, one thing following after another? Is anyone or anything in charge directing events and directing our lives so that they actually get where they're going, but not because of random chance? Well, this morning we are launching a study into what I think is one of the most compelling and unusual books of the Bible, the book of Esther. It's compelling because, as you're going to see, it is an absolutely amazing story. It's unusual because for a book in the Bible, well, God is never even once mentioned. And we barely even see anything that looks like religious practice. It is a very unusual, seemingly un un or non-religious book in a deeply religious volume. On the one hand, it, it's, it's deeply historical, right? There, there are countless details in the book of Esther that have been confirmed by archaeology, that have been confirmed by contemporary secular historians of the day. On the other hand, it is profoundly literary. There is an artistry here. It, you're going to feel like you are reading a finely crafted short story. 
on the surface of the book of Esther, it has just one purpose. And, and that's to explain the, the origin and the proper celebration of Purim. It's a, it's a Jewish festival. It's one of only two festivals that are celebrated by the Jews that were not established in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch. It, it, it's actually the, the final festival of the year. It happens one month before the first festival of the year, which is Passover. This year it's going to be celebrated in the middle of March. So that's, that's really the, the purpose of Esther, uh, as a book, at least on its surface, to explain where did this festival come from and how do we properly celebrate it. But its real purpose, I think, is deeper. Its real purpose is to show the providence of God in the unexpected preservation of his people in exile. In a world where God is unseen, in a world in which it even seems like God is absent. Esther answers the question, can we trust that God has not abandoned us? Can we trust that he remains committed to our deliverance even when it seems like he's not even there? So turn with me, if you would to the book of Esther, to Esther chapter 1. This is found on page 433, if you're using one of those black Bibles that we have in the pews, page 433, Esther chapter 1. I'm going to just read the first two verses. Esther 1, verse 1. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus. This is a difficult name to pronounce. I'm going to get it wrong many times. Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. All right, I'm going to stop there. You might still be actually looking for Esther. So while you're still looking for it, uh, let, me put, let me put the book in some context for you. The events of this book are actually quite precisely dated. They take place beginning in 483 BC and then last for roughly a decade. So from about 483 to 473 BC, the book itself was probably written about 50 years after the events took place. Now, what else is happening when the book of Esther is happening? What's going on during those years? Well, I mean, when we think about biblical history, there, we've, got, we've got a small minority, just a very small minority of Jews have responded to the decree of Cyrus, which was issued 50 years before Esther begins, to, to, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. So that work is, is ongoing as Esther opens. Zerubbabel is there leading that, that work. Ezra has not yet arrived, but he's going to arrive soon. And then shortly after him, Nehemiah is going to show up. But from the perspective of world history, what's going on in Jerusalem at this point is a sideshow. What else is going on in the world at this point? Well, over in China... Confucius is about to die. He'll die about one year after this book opens. And in the West, Herodotus, the, the, the great historian who's going to record the, the Persian Wars, which, which actually unseen begin as Esther opens, Herodotus is about to be born. Athens, 
is in its golden age. Pericles is leading the city. Sophocles is writing, the the guy who wrote Oedipus Rex, one of the great playwrights. Thucydides, the historian, is on the scene. As, As Esther opens... The Pythagorean theorem, something that all of us learned, you you know, in in school at some point, the Pythagorean theorem is about 25 years old. And Socrates is about to be born. So just think about that for a moment. Think about the context of Esther. The most seminal thinkers who are going to shape the respective cultures of both East and and West, for millennia, are on the scene. Some amazing things are happening in world history at this point. Now, from a biblical perspective, what's happening in Jerusalem with Zerubbabel and soon with Ezra, man, that is the very center of the world. That is the center of what God is doing in history. And the events in Susa are far, far, far away from what it seems like God is all about. But from a secular perspective, the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa, is the very center of the world. In a very real sense, therefore, the question that the majority of Jews face, because, of course, the majority didn't go back to Jerusalem. The majority are still scattered throughout the Persian Empire. The question that the majority of Jews face at this point is whether or not God who seems utterly absent from their world, whether or not God is still their God and whether or not they are still his people, even though they are in exile and even though it seems like God is not to be seen, is he still looking out for them? And in that sense, I want to suggest that the situation Esther is very much like our situation. In fact, in terms of Old Testament books, there might not be a book that is is more relevant, that is more kind of like right on top of our own experience. Like those Jews, our question in the randomness of this life is often quite simple. Who is in control? Is anybody in control? Does my life have any purpose or meaning? Now, the answer to that question is going to take the entire book of Esther. And and this morning, we're only looking at chapter one. But at the very least, chapter one is going to make this much clear. And this is the the main idea of, of the chapter. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Human authority is real, but it's not really in control. Human authority is real. But it's not really in control. Which raises the question, who's in control? Who is in control? Is it the king? Well, look with me at beginning in verse 2 of of, uh, Esther chapter 1. We're going to pick up this story uh, with Esther chapter 1, verse 2. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. 
He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus's palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. All right, well, we'll stop there. The, the, the setting, as I mentioned earlier, is the royal court of King Ahasuerush. Who is he? He, you, you will be more familiar with him by the name Xerxes. This is King Xerxes, Xerxes I, um, but he's, he's described in this book as King Ahasuerush. And, and we're in Susa, which is one of the four capital cities of the Persian Empire. Now, Ahasuerush ruled over an empire, we're told, that stretches from India to Kush. So what does that translate into kind of your modern geopolitical map? Well, India didn't actually mean the subcontinent. It meant the Indus Valley where the Indus River ran. So basically, he is the sole ruler of an empire that stretches from Pakistan all the way over to Turkey, the edge of Turkey, even pushing up against Greece. He's, he's ruling an area from the Balkans in the north all the way down to what we know as Sudan in Africa in the south. The power, the wealth that this represented is as vast as any that has ever existed. Now, the, the year is 483 B.C., as I mentioned, and Ahasuerush has called a war council, a, a feast for all of his nobles and army commanders and governors that's going to last for six months. And, and people have come in from all over the empire for this war council. It's a display of power and wealth and splendor, and it has one purpose. It is meant to convince the assembled guests and, and to rally their support for his planned invasion of Greece. Why does he want to invade Greece? Well, because his dad, Darius, had attempted to invade Greece, and Greece had defeated Darius. Darius, in fact, had died in those battles. And we know from history that Xerxes wanted to pick it up where his dad left off and wanted really to avenge his father's death. The, the historian Herodotus describes this very war council, this very event that Esther describes in his own history of the Persian War. And, and there he gives us 
Xerxes or Ahasuerus's motivation for this council and for this war. Herodotus records for us that that King Ahasuerus, he calls him Xerxes, said, whoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. So you understand why this feast, this war council is so lavish and so generous. This display was meant to demonstrate to these nobles and governors and various warlords, etc., that he needed. It was meant to demonstrate to them that I'm good for my word. I, I promise you. If, if you come, if you show up for this, for this campaign, this military campaign with your army, I'm going to reward you handsomely. And here's the proof. You've seen it. You know I can do it. Now, at the end of the six-month council, there is a seven-day banquet. We, we see that there in verse, in verse 5. At the end of this time, the king held a week, week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace. Now, to this banquet, it's not just the nobles that are invited, but we're told that all the people of the city, from from the greatest to the least, everybody gets to come for this feast. And it's amazing, right? The trappings are opulent. The, The wine flows freely without limit. There are no restrictions on the drinking, we're told. And the, district, the descriptions of, of, of the buildings and, and the furniture and, and the feast itself, I mean, it, it's not only lavish and opulent. If you're a reader of the Bible, you'll be thinking this is kind of unusual. We, we don't typically get in narratives detailed descriptions of, of the, the, the trappings and the environment and the building and the couches and what was on the marble columns. We don't typically get that in Old Testament literature except when the tabernacle is being described in Exodus or the temple is being described in 1 Kings or if you're a reader of the New Testament, when the heavenly Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21. Now, secular historians and archaeology very much vindicate the description that we're given here of the capital in Susa. But we should not miss the author's point in giving us this description. Here is a man whose power and wealth were rivaled only by God. Only by God. We are looking in these opening nine verses. We are looking at the pinnacle of human authority. And we are meant to be impressed. We are meant to be overawed. I've, I've had that experience myself. Some of you have as well. You've been to places like Buckingham Palace. And, and even though we know it's a constitutional monarchy now and the queen doesn't have any real power, nevertheless, it's like impressive. I, I've, I've sat in a room with the president of the United States, much smaller than this room. I've, I've been in the West Wing. You get close to real human power, real human wealth, and it is palpable. You feel it. It's very real. The author wants us to feel that. But the crown jewel of this king's treasure wasn't anything that's been described thus far. 
Now, the crown jewel of his treasure is his wife, Queen Vashti, we're told. We're we're introduced to her there in verse 9. She's also giving a feast. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Her her name is Queen Vashti in the book of Esther. She's going to be referred to several times. That might be her real name. It might not be her real name. And, And the reason I want to point this out is because Vashti in the old Persian sounds like very beautiful lady. Okay? What about Ahasuerus? Well, Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus um, is, is actually a Hebrew transliteration of a Persian word, and it doesn't mean anything. But in the Hebrew, it sounds like king headache. That's what it sounds like. And he's about to get a big one. I think we've got to be aware of the fact that that kind of like the characters in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we're being alerted to the significance of these people in in, in the way that this story is going to be told. The queen, this very beautiful lady, is holding her own feast, but King Headache... He wants to show off his trophy wife to everybody that showed up for his feast. And so he summons her. He doesn't ask her to come. No, he sends people to go and get her and physically bring her like a trophy to show off to everyone who's there. Now, at this point, another feature of the book appears And we're going to see it again and again. The unexpected reversal. Given the description that we've seen thus far, given all that power, as as a reader, what you expect is for Vashti to appear as commanded and for everyone to congratulate the king on his wonderful luck in having such a beautiful wife. But that's not what happens. She refuses She doesn't come. If we were watching this as a movie and there was a soundtrack to it, at this point, we'd hear the needle scratching across the record as everything kind of comes to a halt. Now, we don't know why she refused. The the author of Esther doesn't tell us. This is going to happen a lot. The the author is going to refuse to characterize what's going on inside of the uh, the people that we're reading about. For the most part, he's not going to psychologize them. He's not going to examine their motives. We're just not told, right? I mean, mean, maybe, and and given the way I've I've told the story so far, we would say maybe she's resentful. Maybe she doesn't like being treated like an object. And so she's just had enough, and she's not coming. Maybe. The author didn't tell us that. Maybe she was just indisposed. Uh, some, some commentators are, are, are pretty certain that, that this is the queen. She's, she's called here very beautiful lady, but, but this is actually the queen that is going to give birth to the heir of Xerxes. His name will be Artaxerxes. And if that's the case, she is very pregnant at this point. So maybe she's just indisposed. We don't know. Maybe she was just really busy serving her guests and it's like, not now, dear. We don't know. It's left ambiguous. And this is something you're going to have to get used to 
in Esther. This is another feature of the book. It's going to recur over and over and over again. Things happen, and we don't quite know why. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, her refusal, whatever it was that motivated it, her refusal is going to set up a remarkable chain of events. Now, we may not know the queen's motives, but we do know the king's response. That we are told there in verse 12. He is furious. She has embarrassed him in front of the very people that he's attempting to impress. I mean, we need to feel the weight of what has just happened. The ruler of most of the known world, the most powerful man in the room or any room that any of those people could even imagine, the mighty warrior who is going to bring Athens to his knees, cannot get his own wife to come to his dinner party. We're meant to laugh. It's supposed to be funny. And yet it's not, right? Because here we are in the modern world, and we're just on the other side of hashtag me too. And we're deeply aware of the way women are treated in this world. And so it's funny and it's really serious. It's tempting to read this through the lens of Me Too. It's tempting to to read this through the lens of the, the, the legitimate and correct fight waged by feminism for women to be treated as people, not objects. And certainly, I think, we can draw that observation and we can and even should draw that lesson. Some of you are feeling that intensely at this moment. And that's okay. I think that's right that you should be feeling that. From time immemorial, women have been treated as nothing more than objects for men's gratification. And not only is that wrong, not only is it to be utterly condemned as wrong, but women are to be commended for refusing to put up with it anymore. Now, the Bible does teach that wives should respect and submit to their husbands. We heard that read earlier. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. But we need to understand right here, and I'm going to come back to this again, biblical submission never means submitting to demeaning or abusive treatment. It never means being willing to be used as an object rather than treated as a person. The Bible is very clear on this. Women, like men, were created in the image of God. They are equally image bearers and are to be treated as such. Now, having said that, and I'm going to come back to this, we also need to realize As true as all of that that I just said sounded, that's not the author's point. So what is his point? Well, his point is in the laughter that that, that some of you uh, express quite appropriately. His, His point is, don't be fooled 
by the heights of human splendor and wealth and power and authority, if the will of the most powerful man in the world can be foiled by a mere woman, well, then it tells us something very true about the nature of human authority. As we're going to see throughout the book of Esther, human authority is real, but it is not absolute. It's hold on things. Its ability to control everything is largely an exercise in self-delusion. And if the pandemic has not taught us that, I don't know what it has taught us. The question I think that we've got to ask ourselves, given the foibles of human authority, given the obvious limitations of human authority, why do we keep in our own lives trying to control everything? Why do we think we even can? Well, if the king isn't in control, then second, maybe we need to ask, is it the queen? Is she, is she in control? Let's pick up the story in verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who, misunderstood, who, who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memukan. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti, since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs. Memukan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked, Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Mimikin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Okay, so maybe power, ultimate control, is not exercised through power. Maybe it's exercised through sex. Right? The idea was current. About 50 or 60 years after the book of Esther, Aristophanes is going to publish his play, Lysistrata. I don't assume that all of you know what that play is about, but it's basically a play about the women of Greece going on a sex strike to force their husbands to negotiate peace with each other and stop being at war in the Peloponnesian War. So the idea is out there. 
And I think there is some reason to think that part of what the king's advisors are worried about is not that their wives will refuse to come to dinner, but that their wives will refuse to come to bed. I think that's a reasonable uh, uh, assumption, given what he says, given what Mimikin says. But just as we would be wrong to view Vashti through a feminist lens only, I think we'd be equally wrong to view Ahasuerus and his wise men as merely sexually anxious. This is about power. This is about the rule of law and custom. And it's about the disorder that results when the powerful flout social norms. Note what the king says there in in verse, uh, in verse 15. According to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ashwahash's command, a command that was lawfully delivered? Now, one of the advisors speaks for the rest. And on the one hand, I think it does reveal his own personal anxieties. If the queen can do this, then other noble women, including his noble wife, We'll do it, too. That's kind of what's going on there in verse 18. But on the other hand, and this is where he starts, as a public person in high position, what she does will impact the rest of society all the way down. That's the force of verse 17. And and what will happen? Well, what will happen is a complete breakdown of authority with the result that there will be even more contempt from the wives and more fury from the husbands there at the end of verse 18. And once again, we find ourselves in a very ambiguous moment. On the one hand, this looks like a classic example of the patriarchy putting down an uppity woman. And there is some truth to that. But on the other hand, there is truth to what Mimukin says. Even though it's said with the slimiest of motives. You see, Vashti wasn't just any married woman. She was queen. Public morals, convention, mores, that govern a society are set by the elites of any culture. And when the elites abandon those conventions and morals and customs and rules, when the elites abandon them, the rest of society follows. It's like a law of the universe. I'm old enough to remember the resolution that was passed by the Southern Baptist Convention in 1998 in response to President Bill Clinton's scandal with an intern named Monica Lewinsky. I want to read to you just a part of that resolution. This is what the largest Baptist denomination in our country said in 1998. Whereas tolerance of serious wrong by leaders sears the conscience of the culture, spawns unrestrained immorality and lawlessness in the society and surely results in God's judgment. Therefore, be it resolved that we affirm that moral character matters to God 
and should matter to all citizens, especially God's people, when choosing public leaders. Be it further resolved that we implore our government leaders to live by the highest standards of morality, both in their private actions and in their public duties, and thereby serve as models of moral excellence and character. And be it finally resolved that we urge all Americans to embrace and act on the conviction that character does count in public office and to elect those officials and candidates who, although imperfect, demonstrate consistent honesty, moral purity, and the highest character. I think that statement was a true statement. I think that concern was valid in 483 BC and in 1998 and in 2016. And I think it is still valid today. And it is not just valid for government officials. It's it's valid for anyone who bears a a public role of leadership and authority, whether that's in in business or in sports or entertainment, but brothers and sisters, especially here in the church. The character of leaders, their respect for institutions, for law and order, for public morals matters. This is why in, in 1 Peter, Peter tells the elders of the local church to be an example to the flock. Don't just teach them. Be an example to the flock. And, and it's why when elders are not examples, Paul tells the local church to hold them publicly accountable. In 1 Timothy chapter 5. So I, I just spent the, the weekend with, with the elders. We had an elders retreat. And I want to say to the congregation, I am so thankful to be able to serve with, with these particular men. I, I want to encourage you that these are men of character. The, these are men who love this church. These are men whose example is worthy to be followed. But let me say to my fellow elders, brothers, let us watch our lives as well as our doctrine closely. Because the blessing of this congregation is dependent in part upon it. This, I think, is something that is not just for, for elders. This is a truth that, that any and all of us who bear any kind of authority or responsibility or leadership really need to take on board. This is true for us as parents, as our children are watching. This is, this is true for, for teachers in the, in the classroom because their students are watching. This is true for husbands in the home, for leaders in society. Public morality, public respect for the norms and conventions, the law and order of a society is not simply a question of your own personal liberty, your own personal conscience, but especially not if you are in a position where others are looking to you 
where others are following your lead and especially when others are under your authority. Well, where does this leave us? Is the king in charge again? Has he reasserted his authority through this, through this edict, you know, through, through this law that he's published? Hardly. Instead of keeping it as small and quiet as possible, I'm sure you noticed there the advisors, very much for their own benefit, you remember they're thinking about their noble wives, very much for their own benefit, they convinced the king to publish his personal humiliation to the entire empire. Right? Don't miss the dark humor in what's going on here. There is no law on the books. So when the advisors say, I know, let's publish a law. Let's publish a law, not just for Susa, not just for the court. Let's publish a law and send it to the furthest reaches of the empire. Let's make sure we translate it into every possible language so nobody misses it. Everyone will now know that Queen Vashti defied the king. And so she is no longer Queen Vashti. Did you note the change of name there in verse 19? For the very first time, she is not referred to as Queen Vashti, but simply Vashti, which is how she'll be referred to for the rest of the book. She is deposed. Another woman is going to be chosen. And what's more, the king commands in this edict that goes out to everybody, every man should be master of his own house. An ironically humiliating decree necessitated by the fact that he was most decidedly not the master of his house. There's so much to learn here. And it's kind of uncomfortable. Because it's funny and it's true. And we don't like that kind of ambiguity. So let me just work through a few lessons that I think that we can draw. I mean, to start, we need to recognize the ambiguity that is what it means to live in this fallen world. Human authority is always corrupted by self-interest. Always There's never an instance of human authority that is not touched and tainted by human corruption, but that alone does not delegitimize it. A principle remains true even when it's used for selfish ends. Authority is real and to be respected, even though so often it will be exercised imperfectly. And this seems to be a a truth, a a reality that our culture is having a hard time dealing with, right? So are, are there abuses in the way policing is conducted in America? Yes. But does that mean we should go over here to defund the police? No. No, of course not. The, the, the abuse of police authority doesn't mean we should get rid of it. Are elections perfect? Certainly not. Are there irregularities? Are, are there even people that try to get away with stuff fraudulently? Well, of course. But does that mean that we should go all the way over here to this other side and, and try to tear down the very institutions of our democracy? No. No, of course not. It feels like our whole society has gone mad. Yes, things aren't perfect. 
No, that doesn't mean we tear all the institutions down. This is the world we live in. We need to be able to live in it. Now that means we need to think about this idea I mentioned earlier that wives should honor their husbands. You see the decree there in verse 20. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. Verse 20 is the only verse in the entire book of Esther that the New Testament alludes to. Never does it expressly quote it, but it's clearly alluding to it. And you heard it read earlier in Colossians chapter 3. So what does godly submission in a marriage look like? Frankly, it's easier to talk about what it doesn't look like. It's not submission to anything that is sinful or wrong or demeaning or disrespectful. It is not giving up your humanity or your personhood or your individuality. Submission also is not to be reduced to giving him the tie-breaking vote. That's not submission either. Biblical submission of a wife to a husband in a Christian marriage, I think, if I'm going to describe it positively, looks like trusting his leadership, supporting him in the direction that he's setting for your family. It it means looking to him to lead your family in a godly direction and then following that lead, even if left to yourself, you might have led in a slightly different direction. Submission in a marriage, in fact, looks like the church's response to Christ's headship. And that, of course, cannot be reduced to a tie-breaking vote. Now, I get it, sort of. I'm not a wife, so I don't really get it. But I think I can understand that submission to a husband, who, even though he's a Christian, is still a sinner, is a really scary idea. I can appreciate that. Sisters, those of you who are married, those of you who are thinking about getting married, understand this. The Bible does not ask you to submit to your husband because he's worthy of it. It asks you to submit to your husband as to the Lord because the Lord is worthy of it and he can be trusted. I think there's a lesson here too for husbands and really anyone who's been given authority. If you have to command respect, then you aren't worthy of that respect. If you have to demand obedience, then I think very probably you're not worthy of that obedience. Authority, authority and power can be held by virtue of a position. There's such a thing as positional authority, right? But respect is different. Respect is earned. It is conferred by those underneath that authority to the one who is wielding the authority. And that respect flows toward character. So husbands, do you want to be respected in your marriage? Do you want to be respected at work? For all of us. Do you want to be respected in the church? 
then let me encourage you, live up to the character that attracts such respect to itself. Not down to the character that must demand it. I think for all of us, we need to consider the cause of Ahasuerus's anger. Why does he respond the way he does? Isn't it just pride? He didn't get what he wanted. He got embarrassed in front of his friends. And so he reacted in anger. James writes, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that war within you, you desire and do not have? Friends, what makes you angry? What especially gets under your skin real quick and makes the anger flash? Even if it doesn't flash out hot, it brings it to a boil quick. What is that in you? Ahasuerus responded out of his pride and in his anger to get what he wanted. And we're not to miss We're not to miss the point. We're not to miss the fact that when he did so, he actually simply further humiliated himself. Are you sure that your anger is getting you what you want? Now, I'm drawing these lessons, but I don't want you to think that the main point of Esther or even the the specific characters in Esther is that of moral example that we're going to draw moral lessons from. That's not why the book of Esther was written, and that's not why these particular characters are recorded the way they are. I think we can draw the legitimate lessons that I've drawn, but we need to understand that the question Esther is asking and answering is third, who's really in control? Who's really in control? Chapter one, you see, is setting the scene. It's a scene in which we see just how dangerous a world we live in is. It's a world in which ungodly authority and power is wielded on personal whim and manipulated for personal gain. It's a world in which power plays are won and lost and things can change on a dime. As I said, human authority, human power is real. But there's an invisible scene being said as well. Look back at verse 1. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. What is not apparent in your English translations is that this book begins exactly like all the other biblical histories begins. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, it begins with a small phrase, often left untranslated as it is here, Wayahi, and it happened. And it happened. That's the way all the history books of the Bible begin. And when you look at those other history books, you realize those histories were the story of God's actions, his faithful leading his people, protecting them, providing for them, settling them in the land under his good rule. Centuries later, that same phrase is a reminder that God has not changed. 
And though his people are in exile, far from the temple, far from the promised land, they are not far from him. He is still governing history. The story of Esther is the story of God's unexpected deliverance of his people. And as we're going to see, it's a story that points forward to the most unexpected deliverance of all. Esther begins with this ruthless king demanding submission from his queen. How different it was when the king of kings and lord of lords showed up on the scene. I want to read to you from Mark, Mark's gospel, chapter 10. Jesus called his disciples over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus identified himself there as son of man, he wasn't being humble and self-effacing. He was claiming to be the one in Daniel chapter 7 to whom universal dominion and eternal kingdom had been given. All authority was his. And what did he do with it when he showed up on the scene? When perfect character was combined with absolute power, In the person of Jesus, he did not first demand obedience, though it is his to demand. No, what he first did was to lay down his life as a ransom for many. If you're not a Christian, this is what I want you to understand coming out of the book of of Esther and, and, and chapter one. The God who holds the hearts of kings in his hands, the God who is ordering every event of every day in order to accomplish all of his purposes, the God who exercises absolute sovereignty is the same God who gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. This is the good news of the gospel that the God who is in control of everything and who has all power took on human flesh and with that human flesh didn't come and lord it over all of us, but no, took that human flesh and offered it as a sacrifice for us. That as we trust his authority and his love, as we repent of trying to be kings ourselves, but instead trust in him, we might be forgiven. We might be reconciled to God. We might be brought in and under the best authority that has or ever will exist. That is who is really in control. The one who not only rules our world, but who gave himself for it gave himself for you.
And what could be more unexpected than that? Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and consider the ways that you have responded to the reality of God's authority in your life. Take a moment just to confess any rebellion that you see and ask the Lord to help you know what it means to submit to his authority of love. Lord God, we confess that we think no one's worthy of authority except ourselves. We confess that so often we buck and reject all authority that would be placed upon us. And we are so often blind to our own failures to exercise authority in a way that is worthy. Lord, we pray that you would give us soft hearts to your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. The reality of his authority. The reality of his love. And that we would gladly submit to him. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do this work in us that we would know the blessing of his rule as our king. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.